Thanks, Becca. Am I audible? Yes? Good. <laughs> I'm a little bit um, technologically phobic, so <laughs> anyway, there we are. Right. Well, first of all, can I just say how really good it is to be here? And it's great to be here. Um, this was my church for many years, and it's lovely to see um, some very familiar faces. And also, did I do anything? <laughs> right. Um, and it's also really lovely to see people from St Mary's, where I'm uh, serving as a curate at the moment, and from other churches around the area. It's just great to be here. And thank you to um, Debbie and to Rachel for inviting me here to speak this morning. It's a, a really great privilege to be able to do that. So before I start, I'd just like to pray and then also just to invite you to turn in your Bibles to two Chronicles. Um, <clears throat> chapter 7. Uh, there, I'll give you a page number. It's on page 4. This is where I really wish I had my glasses. It's on page uh, 442 um, of the Testament, and we'll be starting to read at verse 11. So I'll just give you a minute to find that. Two Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 11. The Lord appears to Solomon. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in this place today you are present with us, gathered here, and we pray for our time together this morning, Lord. Pray that whatever is not of you would be discarded, and what is of you will grow and flourish and bring the fruit of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Apparently, if I had been a boy, I was going to be given the name David, but instead, I was called Alison. Alison Kate Miller. Alison, for no particular reason that I'm aware of, and Kate, 
after an elderly lady in the little village in the west coast of Scotland that we lived in at the time, a little place called Glenlean. School happened, nicknames appeared. Some were okay, some were definitely not okay. And somewhere along the line, a few very close friends started to call me Ali. I trained as a nurse, and during my training, I was almost never anything but Nurse Miller. Sometimes I was even just Miller. I have some not very nice memories of being yelled at down a corridor by a very scary nursing sister on night duty. Any of you who are nurses might know that feeling. Um, my dad has his own name for me. My husband has his own name for me too, neither of which am I going to share today. <laughs> when I got married, I changed my surname. Later, we moved to St. Margaret's and started to attend St. Stephen's in East Twickenham, home church to one of the very few friends who at the time called me Ali. She introduced me to lots of people. And very quickly, Alison Kate Miller became Ali Matthew, at least here. I head home to friends and family in Scotland and I am still very firmly Alison. Many of you here this morning, I think, will have similar stories to tell about your names. But whether or not our names have morphed over the years, or whether they've stayed just as they were given to us at birth, they mean something, don't they? Our names are part of who we are. They are part of, if you like, our story. And the title for today's talk, Called By My Name, comes, as you've just heard from our reading this morning, from two chronicles in the Old Testament. And as is the case with many things in life, the context of this passage is important. So to start us off, I'd like to take a brief look at these books and their place in the story of the people of God before we go on to think a bit about what that might mean for us here this morning. It's not that often that we talk about the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles in church. I've never personally heard of a sermon series based on them. I'm sure someone, somewhere, must have done one. I'm sure they have. I've just never heard about it. They've been referred to as the least used parts of the Bible. We don't really know for sure who the author was, but whoever it was is generally called simply the chronicler. Much of the first part of Two Chronicles, where our reading is from, is concerned with the building of God's temple, the combined efforts of King David, who provided all the materials, and his son Solomon, who was chosen by God to carry out the actual building. And essentially, One and Two Chronicles draw on a massive amount from across the Old Testament to retell the stories of One and Two Samuel and One and Two Kings. But here's one of the things about what we've heard read that I think might be important for us to reflect a little bit on today. The context. The context in which the books of Samuel and Kings are written and the context in which Chronicles retells their stories were entirely different. Samuel and Kings seek to answer the questions of people who have experienced some tough times, exile and deportation, the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of their place of worship. 
they seem to be asking the question, why has this happened to us and where is God in the middle of it all? One commentary puts it like this, the authors of Samuel and Kings demonstrate that God did not abandon his people, but his people abandoned him by breaking his commandments and following after other gods. It's a little bit like trying to make sense of a bad situation when you're in the middle of it. But the writer of Chronicles is retelling the stories to a people who are no longer in exile. Yes, they are still living under foreign rule, but they're back home in Jerusalem. They are free to worship in the now rebuilt temple. So instead of asking the question, why, the focus is more, okay, all this has happened, so who are we now? Are we still the people of God? What do all of God's promises to his people in the past, God's promises to David and Solomon, mean to us today? The focus is on spiritual renewal. It's on God's forgiveness, on seeking and serving a loving God. The people of God have been given a new beginning, a new chance to get it right. And the story is retold in this light. Chronicles, as another of the commentaries I looked at, is not simply a retelling but a reinterpretation for a different generation living in a different time. And right at the heart of these books is 2 Chronicles 7.14, an invitation to God's people to turn back to him, to search for him, to talk to him, to listen to him, to follow him. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If my people who are called by my name. The thing that I never cease to get a kick out of is that that's us too. We too are part of the ongoing story of God's people, a different generation living in a different time. That's what we are, a different generation living in a different time. We too can choose to ignore God's invitation. We can choose to turn our faces away from him and to walk the other way. Or we can choose to turn our faces towards him, to follow his call on our lives. And in doing so, know his forgiveness freely offered and understand more and more of his unconditional love. It's not, of course, that in choosing to follow God that everything suddenly becomes incredibly easy. But we're taking hold of the promises of a God who is faithful, who came to live among us in the person of his son, Jesus, Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection marks the beginning of the coming of God's kingdom and the fulfillment of those amazing words from the book of Revelation right at the end of the Bible, see, I am making all things new. And although our given are important, although they tell us something of the story of our lives, they are not as important as our primary identity, our first calling to be a child of God. It's a life's work to learn how much we are loved by God and to learn how to live lives that love him back. And it's an invitation, not a judgment. 
God has given us free will, and it's up to us to decide what we do with it, to follow or not. God's call on each one of our lives is different. He's given us different gifts and different possibilities, and he calls us to follow and serve him in different ways. And just like the people of God throughout the span of history, we find ourselves at different times in different situations. We might, this morning, be in the middle of some really tough things, trying to make sense of what's happening, asking big questions about where God is, feeling alone and cut off. Or we might be somewhere very different, things going well, feeling loved and supported, perhaps at the start of a new season of life. Wherever we are and whatever situation we find ourselves in, God's primary call to us is the same, to know that we are called by his name. We are his children and we are loved by him. Despite our failings and our flaws, despite that till the day I die, I will very much be always a work in progress. This is the grace of God. It's interesting, too, that when I look back on the story of my given name, Alison, Ali, or any of the other myriad names that I seem to have acquired over the years, I find that those names always relate to others. It's not just about me, is it? Yes, of course, I could go to the registrar's office or wherever it is to go and change my name to something exciting. But no matter what I do with it, it's always something that is in relation to other people. It's what I'm known by, by others. God's call to us is both as his individual children, but of course, it's also as his community, as his people, the body of Christ. Being a follower of God is not something that is done very effectively alone. We are better when we work together even and perhaps especially with our differences. In the recent um, debate, which was hard to miss on the press about women bishops, I was inspired by our Archbishop, Archbishop Justin, who said, we're family. We don't always get on with our family, but we live with them. In his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, the writer Eugene Peterson talks the word soul. It's an interesting word, the word soul. I'm not sure it's a word that's used too much outside conversations about faith. Peterson writes, and I paraphrase a bit here, in our current culture, soul has given way to self, and self is the soul minus God. Self is a threadbare word, a scarecrow word. Soul, however, is a word reverberating with relationships, God relationships, human relationships, earth relationships. God means us to be in right relationship with him, with one another, and with his creation. This is at the heart of God's call on our lives. This is what it means to be a people called by his name. As Debbie and Rachel and others were praying about this morning, they were reminded of a passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about a fragrance that comes from knowing God, the aroma of Christ. 
they reflected too on how, as God's people today, we are living stones of a living temple. We don't need to look very far to see how broken the world is around us. Struggles in our own lives, in the lives of our friends and families, the headlines in our news, all the hidden stories that never make the front pages. Our world badly needs the aroma of Christ. It badly needs the hope of Jesus, the hope for a better future. And we're not all called to be Nelson Mandela or Mother Teresa. That's who they are called to be. We need to be who God has really called us to be, not someone else. At the end of um, John's Gospel, Jesus and Peter are on the beach together. And Jesus is talking to Peter about who he has called him to be, the rock on, the ch- on which the church will be built. He commands him to go and feed his sheep. But Peter, as ever, is a little bit distracted. And he asks uh, Jesus about one of the other disciples. What about him? What about him over there? Jesus says, what is that to you? Follow me. Be who God is calling us to be. Take off the many masks we put on in our lives that hide our real selves and dare to be vulnerable with the living God who loves us exactly as we are. To quote Eugene Peterson again, Jesus enables us to take seriously who we are and where we are without being seduced by someone else or somewhere else. Jesus keeps our feet on the ground, attentive to children, in conversation with ordinary people, sharing meals with friends and strangers, listening to the wind, observing the wildflowers, touching the sick and the wounded, praying simply and unselfconsciously. Jesus insists that we deal with God right here and now, in the place we find ourselves and with the people we are with. Jesus is God, here and now. If we choose to make the daily decision to be known as a person and as a people who are called by God's name, and we continually seek to humble ourselves before him, to pray and to open ourselves up to the change and the challenge in our ordinary, in our everyday lives that comes with learning how much we are loved by him, then we are choosing to go on an amazing, extraordinary adventure, an adventure with God. Amen. Thank you, Allie.